Hello and welcome back to the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. I'm Anna Fittinghoff. And I'm Matt Lowden. In today's episode, we are delighted to bring you an interview with Dr. Christopher Hood, Reader in Japanese Studies at Cardiff University. Dr. Hood began his academic journey by studying Japanese and business at the University of Sheffield. From there, following a year in Japan on the JET program, he achieved his PhD also at Sheffield. In 2000, Dr. Hood became director of Japanese studies at Cardiff University. Dr. Hood also currently serves as president of VEGES and from 1999 to 2009 was an associate fellow at Chatham House. In this interview, we talked to Dr. Hood about his journey through academia, how he developed an interest in studying Japan, his experiences as a scholar, and how he has balanced his academic pursuits with his personal life and his second life as an author of fiction. Dr. Hood also shares a number of fascinating anecdotes about academia, Japanese studies, and his experiences traveling to and around Japan. We hope that you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Hood and that it provides you an interesting new perspective on how you might approach your own journey through Japanese studies. This interview also marks the final episode in this series of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. Thank you all for listening and for making this endeavor worthwhile. We hope to be back in the future with another season and another set of interviews with the best and the brightest in the field of Japanese studies. We would like to thank the British Association for Japanese Studies for their support and for making this podcast possible. Right, okay. So we are here today with Dr. Christopher Hood, reader in Japanese studies at Cardiff University. Dr. Hood received his bachelor's degree in Japanese studies and business studies from the University of Sheffield, from where he also received his PhD. Since 2000, Dr. Hood has been at Cardiff University and has held the role of the president of the British Association for Japanese Studies since 2016. Dr. Hood is also the author of several novels related to Japan, including Hijacking Japan and the ongoing Iwakura series. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's lovely to be here, albeit obviously doing via podcast rather than being able to sit around a table and chat, which I think we were hoping to do at one point. That would have been the ideal, although if you'd ever been in the uh, podcast booth that we did use for our first interview, you might not be saying that because it is a very, very small little room. <laughs> oh, see, because I, I wasn't picturing that. I was thinking of going to one of these lovely pubs in, in Edinburgh and enjoying some local brew <laughs> while doing the recording. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> I'll stick with the fantasy in my head and we'll go ahead with the podcast instead. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Matt already mentioned a little bit in the introduction Um you're kind of beginning with your bachelor's degree that was already in, in Japanese studies and business studies. And so if we go back at the very beginning, you were being in high school, but when did you or how did you decide to enroll in, in Japanese studies? What triggered your interest? Sure. So um, the story I'm going to tell you now, I've told so many times <laughs> that it, it comes very naturally there's a part of me that wonders actually, is, did it really happen like this? Or have I ended up telling this story so many times that I've even sort of created the memory inside my head, but I'm pretty sure this is exactly what happened. So I went to a high school called Concord College, which is primarily for foreign students um, wanting to go on to British university, particularly those days. It's less so these days as a higher percentage of British students than there used to be. 
when I was there, I think British students accounted for five, seven percent, something like that. And for whatever reason, maybe we can explore this as well in a second, I just started mixing with some of the Japanese students. I think in my first year there, there was about six or seven. Um, it went up to around about 20, I think, in the second year. This is sort of peak of the bubble economy kind of time and a lot of Japanese companies setting up bases in the UK and so on. Um, one day, it would have been at some point um, in the autumn, I think it was, um, the principal, the head teacher, gave a talk about we need to be thinking about university options and so on. And I came out from the talk and bumped into one of my Japanese friends and he said, um, so what are you going to do at university? And I said, Japanese, of course, and we started laughing. Um, and I went home, I was a day student in my first year, I went home and thought, actually, this doesn't sound like such a bad idea. I got a lot of Japanese friends. Japanese girls are cute. Maybe that shouldn't have been said publicly, but never mind. Um, and the Japanese economy is going very well. And so the next day I went into the library to see whether it was possible to actually study Japanese in the UK. And at that time, I think the choice was Oxford, Cambridge, SOAS, and Sheffield, and Stirling was about to launch. Um, and so it kind of went from there. I, I ruled out Oxford and Cambridge, um, applied for SOAS, but because they required a language A-level, I knew my chances were next to zero. And in the old days of, you, of the application forms, you chose four universities and you could put an asterisk against the one you really liked. Um, and I put an asterisk against Sheffield, not SOAS. So it wasn't a total surprise when SOAS <laughs> rejected my application. Um, but I got offers from both Sheffield and Sterling, got the grades and um, that was required for Sheffield and off to Sheffield I went. Um, so that's the rational story. Um, just as a sort of footnote to this, my daughter is now at the high school which I went to. Um, and a couple of times when sort of going up there, it's actually before she joined the school because of the lockdowns and everything at the moment, parents aren't allowed on site. Um, walk past the spot where that conversation probably happened and sort of thought, it started from here with a joke. And of course the punchline to the joke is that most of my Japanese friends, we got used to speaking to each other in English. So it was many, many years before we spoke Japanese to each other because we just automatically went into English when we saw each other's faces. Um, never had a Japanese girlfriend and the bubble burst within about six months of me starting my degree. So in terms of the original three reasons, none of them worked out, but it turned, also turned out to be the best joke I made in my life because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it hadn't been for that bizarre situation so did those um those friendships with your japanese friends at school then provide a gateway into japanese culture and that side of things or you mentioned that it was coming just at the end of the bubble era were you mm. more driven by the idea that japan is uh you know a sensible country to go and study because japan is this booming economy there might be jobs out there yeah, I think, I mean, the, the jobs bit, I think, was kind of the rationalization that I used for my parents. Hopefully they're not going to listen to this podcast, but actually they might. Um, <laughs> rather than what was driving me, it really was sort of the friendship side of things that drove it initially. And Japan, I mean, I was very, it's ironic, it's almost gone in a full loop. I, I was anti-Britain and UK then, as I am again at the moment. I don't believe in nationalism and identity and these sort of things. Um, I didn't put down as being British or anything on my on the recent census. Um, so Japan was a 
a potential place to escape to. Um, and I guess I almost had kind of a, almost to a degree a very sort of rose tinted, the streets are paved with gold kind of view of Japan at that stage. <laughs> Whereas ironically got to Japan and although the streets weren't paved with gold, there was gold in the sake and sometimes on the rice. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I mean, I had a slightly distorted view at one level, but it was also, um, for me, Japan was my place, was a place where I went with friends. I associated with friends. I mean, they started introducing me to um, Japanese popular music. So, I mean, when we've, these days we have so many students coming in to study Japan who come from an interest in culture, whether it's anime, manga, or J-pop, I've always been able to relate to that because that tied in with what I was doing. I was listening to as much Japanese pop music sometimes during my high school days as I was British music, albeit it was very selective based on what CDs my friends had with them and could sort of pass on and so on. But I've always had that association with Japan. So when I see exhibitions in the UK where they're doing something related to Japan and I go in and it's like kimono and tea ceremony and everything, it's just like, that's not my Japan. My Japan is the mountains, the skyscrapers, the karaoke, izakaya. It's everyday life. And um, I think this is one of the ironies sometimes of being in Japanese studies is that on the one hand, I'm sort of saying Japan really isn't that different. It's just another country. Whilst on the other hand, you've got to say, actually, Japan is very different. Because if, if all you do is ever say Japan's the same as everywhere else, people are going to say, well, I don't need to read anything you write, then, do I? So, I mean, mm -hmm. you've got this constant battle um, that goes on. And also the constant battle that when you're someone like me who doesn't have a strong national identity, to then be studying a country has an inherent irony as well. Because um, the two things don't fit neatly side by side, I think. And so um, what was your, your undergraduate undergraduate experience like? You did uh, Japanese studies and business studies. Was that a 50-50 split? Um, did you find yourself focusing more on, on Japanese studies or business studies? Yeah, so I would have loved to have done single honours. Um, Sheffield was just in the process of launching its single honours, but my parents said it would be too narrow. Um, ironically, actually doing the joint on us to some degree was narrower because on the Japanese side of the degree, when there are options, I always went for the ones which were more business related because I mm. thought it would help with the business studies side of the degree. Um, whereas if I'd done a single honors, I would have studied more about politics, albeit Japanese politics, literature and, and so on. So there would have been a greater breadth, albeit Japan always within there in some ways. Um, in other ways, I have no regrets in doing the, the joint honors because um, elements of what I learned through the business side of things helped me in terms of management skills and so on, which probably helped me get the position I got in Cardiff and helps with the role I do in badges and so on. Um, it was 50-50 split in terms of the assessments, but not in the way that it was structured. So um, I think I was, we were amongst the low, last cohort where we went, it was a four year degree program, but we went in as what was called, at least informally, um, year zero. So for the first year, we did no business studies at all. We only did Japanese. And this was intensive during the first two terms. This was still the old days where we had terms rather than semester. So we had the autumn term and the winter term, I guess it was called, spent in Sheffield, just studying Japan and studying Japanese history. And then for the summer term, we went out to Japan for about 10 weeks. And this is what this was our only formal Japan experience for the whole degree program. 
and we were only told about it. I mean, again, think about the regulations and what's involved these days. I mean, if we want to change something about our degree program, we quite often have to do it a year or two in advance because of the way we have to advertise things and so on. We were told we were going to Japan in October, just before going out, effectively the next April. And they were told, oh, and you're going to have to pay nearly £2,000 for this. It's very cheap. And we're going, £2,000 is still a lot of money for some of us. Um, not that cheap. Um, for me, I was, I, I was delighted about it. I mean, I'd just come back from doing four weeks in Japan. I went out to Japan as part of a six-week trip traveling around Asia by myself after my A-levels, going to Japan allegedly to confirm I was doing the right thing as long as I got the right grades. In reality, I was staying at friends' houses and having a whale at a time. So, yeah, we went out for this summer term as our only Japan experience, not really speaking a lot of Japanese at that time. Um, and we, I mean, at Sheffield, we'd used something called the Healy textbook, which had been written by Graham Healy, who was the one of the main language lecturers. And it was great at getting you straight to um, the key points of Japanese grammar and vocabulary, but particularly for um, a workplace environment. So, I mean, after only a few weeks, we were learning kanji for things like eikyo, influence. Um, whereas we never learned, as far as I remember, like really focused on learning all the numbers. And when we got out to Japan, we did homestay for the whole 10 weeks. Um, some of us staying with three or four families, some staying with less. We had a weekend break in Hiroshima, had one family there, but I'd, we had two different families in the Kawasaki area. And then one family when we went down to Mino, sort of Osaka area. Never really studying at a Japanese university. We went, we were on campus at Hosei University, Tama campus for a couple of weeks. Um, and officially we were linked to Osaka Gaidai when we were down in Osaka, but largely we were using the teachers from Sheffield in many cases. They came out as well. So it felt a little bit odd. And whenever someone sort of says, oh, where, which university did you study at when you went to Japan as a year abroad? It's just like, it was 10 weeks abroad and really, didn't have a university experience in the same way. But it was good staying with Japanese families, getting to see that side. And for me, it was just great being out in Japan again. But uh, it was also an eye-opener in realizing how limited our Japanese was, that we'd only ever really used the mass form. And I was staying with families where, I mean, the family I had in Osaka, I had a, my host sister was just coming up on two years old. Using the mass form with her was not appropriate. <laughs> it felt very strange not using a mass form. Um, and for a child, she only could understand the concept. You either know Japanese or you don't know Japanese. And as far as she was concerned, once she got by past the fact that there was a stranger living in her apartment, I mean, she used to literally cry every time I walked into um, the, the, the room for breakfast and everything. It was an apartment. She would just burst into tears. Who's this stranger? But when we finally got to the stage where we could play together and have conversations, she couldn't understand the concept that I didn't speak fluent Japanese. And one memory was that she was using this word Ichigo. And it's just like, Ichigo, Ichigo. And she's like, ah, oh, you're just a child. You don't understand these things. It's not said Ichigo, it said Jugo. It's 15, Jugo. And she just, <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> it was sometime later I realized that Ichigo means strawberry because we didn't have to learn this at university. It's, it's these sort of gaps in knowledge. But uh, despite all that, the 10 weeks gave us amazing confidence. Um, and I think language is a lot about confidence. And certainly by the time of that, the end of that 10 weeks, I just thought I could take on any situation. 
um, that was thrown at me, even though in reality I had huge gaps in vocabulary, not massive gaps in grammar, some, but the Healy textbook really did cover the, the key features in many respects. Um, but uh, felt so confident after that. But I actually went out to Japan again during the, in the summer between the, my last two years, um, allegedly going to look for materials for my undergraduate dissertation. More, it was just using a couple of two-week rail passes and traveling around <laughs> Japan and seeing different aspects of Japan, which in the end helped with research at a later date. In terms of doing my dissertation, I couldn't find materials on what I was going to be doing it, so completely changed my topic not necessarily with the approval of um, supervisors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned this, uh, yeah, that you had to basically have um, a 50-50, um, yeah, made, like majoring in, in two um, different disciplines um, in your undergrad. And coming from a German system where it is very uh, unlikely that you would be able to have just one subject as your major, we always have to have a, something that is accompanying it. I can very much relate to that, that you feel a little bit, yeah, it, it, it seems like that you are not narrowing down on a, on a, on a topic in your, in your major, but you actually are because you are constantly trying to make your life a little bit easier making these links. And I think it, it highlights, like it, we've discussed it before on the podcast with, with, with um, other uh, of our guests, but with, when it comes to Japanese studies and we always have kind of this discussion about like the methodology and um, being an area studies lacking that and depending on what you're focusing on you might require that during your studies but in a way um, did you feel like that that helped with having business and did you require any kind of methodology in there that you then could apply later on or was it just really um, kind of like a, a split of your attention because the, the way that department was running things and like having, having assignments is so different, which certainly was in, in my case, I had a history yeah. of art as my yeah. minor and um, yeah, at my university, that subject didn't really understand that they were seen as a minor subject. So um, I was kind of sitting between two chairs um, and I then ended up being, doing something completely different in my major as well, because you couldn't really focus on history of art. Sure. I didn't really want to. So yeah, um, I mean, as I said, to some degree, I mean, we didn't have a huge number of options. So putting my academic hat on now, I actually try to limit options for students as much as possible because I quite often find they don't necessarily want the options. I think options can come within a module. So mm -hmm. I've got a final year module um, where I team teach or a colleague, and I cover some things which I think would be useful for them to know. But then I say for the assessment, this is your last ever assessment you're going to do at university. Do whatever you want mm -hmm. within the general framework of something that fits with the module. But the option is there. It can be done within the assessment rather than giving sort of people, shall we have a module on literature? Shall we have a module? on It, it can get too bitty that people get spread. Whereas in reality, whatever the diverse interest people have, quite often they work better as a team and you can bring them together mm -hmm. and have a variety of different lectures covering different things, but still having the commonality of Japan studying Japan. And people can get something out of each other in that way. Um, so, I mean, as I said, I, I went for options, which, again, this is the rational answer. I went for options because it would help with my business studies. I also went for options because my girlfriend was doing the same degree. And it's just like, 
I want to be in the same classes as she did. So what are you choosing? Right. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll, I'll do that as well. Um, and again, I learned this, sort of took this on board when it's as an academic that um, we've got a business studies and Japanese program at Cardiff, which was based on the Sheffield model. And it's very ironic that we reached a point a few years ago where we had more students doing business in Japanese in Cardiff um, than I think the rest of the UK put together are much bigger than Sheffield, despite that we were built on the Sheffield model. But one of the problems we have with joint honours programmes is, I mean, Japanese, the language tends to quite often need a lot of slots in the timetable for classes. Um, but the more options you have, quite often the greater the chances for timetable clashes that mm-hmm. you can't just sort of say all the business ones will happen at this time because actually some lectures aren't available on certain days. Um, and I think at one point they had eight different options on the business study side. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let's actually see what the students are actually doing. And I think we found over the course of five years out of eight modules that could be chosen and they had to choose three, they'd only ever chosen four. So I said, right, get rid of the other four. Let's not even have those options anymore. And suddenly you open up eight hours on the timetable where now they're not going to be held reserved for those other modules. So suddenly you don't have those clashes. So, I mean, I think there are pragmatic things we need to take account of. I think with any degree scheme, the problem that we have in the same way we don't know for primary, secondary education is we don't know what people are wanting to do later in their life. And let's face it, we have undergraduates who I'm doing personal tutorials with in their final year. I'm sort of saying, what are you doing after graduation? And they just, they look total panic on their face. They still don't know. Um, And I think from our side as educators, we're constantly trying to think about what potentially do they need to know? And obviously when it's primary and secondary education, we haven't got a clue if these people are going to go on to scientists, business people, whatever it may be. So they need to have a bit of understanding about the periodic table, algebra, literature, and so on. And I think that comes in still with degree schemes when you're dealing with an area like Japanese where the majority of students are starting from scratch. They know almost no language when they start and probably don't know much beyond a few stereotypes and cliches in relation to the country before they start. Maybe these days that's less the case that more will know manga, anime, some cultural things. But it's a very low base compared to someone who's maybe studying German or Spanish, for example, where they probably come in already speaking some of the language, having been to the country many times and so on. And so I think we have to be realistic about what we design and so say many of our students may be like that, but we're trying to get them as quickly as possible up to the same sort of level linguistically and knowledge of a country as someone who studies France. And unfortunately, what it tends to mean is that we have to do shortcuts on some of the theory. And I think this is where people can get found out to a certain degree when they go on to do PhD studies, if they become an academic, is that sometimes they just need to do much more on the literature review side than somebody else who's studying something similar but not related to Japan because they haven't had the time to cover so much background stuff. I mean, I've tried introducing it at undergraduate level, um, but it's a real struggle. We've got limited hours in a week and limited number of teaching hours. We can't do everything. Um, So I think one of the issues, yes, in area studies can be that there's some additional catch up still to be played when doing a PhD and potentially after that. I mean, the areas I've researched have been quite diverse um, because of the the style of my interest. So quite often there's been a lot of 
literary reading to be done almost with, it seems, with every project that I take on because it just means moving into another area. But I don't actually see that as a weakness. I see that as a strength that I can go into it now with sort of a fresh, mature mind rather than being overly influenced by a lecturer who says, you must read this, you must read that, almost inferring you must think this, you must think that. And I think I'm, I think in area studies, we're better at seeing how everything fits together. In my view, you can't study Japanese politics if you don't understand how business works. You can't understand Japanese literature if you don't understand how politics and business works. They all tie in together. Literature, as we know, plays a role in testing people's ideas about the operations of society. And I think area studies is great. I mean, I hate the term area studies, but no one's come out with anything better yet. Area studies is very good at having that very holistic approach and seeing that it's like the human body. It all comes mm -hmm. together rather than being overly specialist. And uh, I get very frustrated when I hear, say, an economist was saying that area studies is wishy-washy and it doesn't have the strong theories and ideas like economics does. And it's just like, yes, but it's thanks to people like economists that we've ended up with climate change. I mean, a lot of these problems have been driven by the economists and business people looking for efficiencies, looking to make money, and you completely screwed the planet. Thanks very much. Uh, whereas area studies, would, maybe if, if there was a few more area studies people in developing policies, we'd see a, a bit more of a holistic approach to this, and we wouldn't have the same degree of problems. To go back to your studies then, you, you did your BA, and uh, you didn't follow necessarily the what people might think of as the traditional next step. You know, I, I think with Anna and I, we both uh, went into our master's and then onto the PhD. You actually, you took a little bit of time out after your BA. Uh, did you go straight onto the JET programme? Yes, I went straight onto the JET programme. Um, I applied for JET officially as an insurance policy. We knew that, uh, I mean, particularly going for the ALT position at a time when, um, I mean, back in 1993, when I went out on jet, 365 new British jets went out. It's an easy number to remember because uh, at a departure speech, um, the person giving the speech um, sort of said, happy birthday. On average, one of you has a birthday today because there's 365 new <laughs> jets going out. Um, so it kind of sticks in your mind because of that. Um, but we knew going for ALT, and speaking Japanese because we knew the British interview panel was very keen to make sure they got people who wouldn't get homesick and quit. So being able to demonstrate that you were interested in Japan was a major plus. So we were thinking we got this in the bag, no problem at all. Um, which then gave the freedom to look around for other things. And I actually got as far as a second interview with the Bank of England. I really didn't help myself on the day. They were, I mean, they, they asked a couple of questions and I was just fairly direct and flippant. And uh, there was one question I couldn't, I didn't really understand the question totally. That They were asking something about, do, do I think that the Bank of England should play a more supervisory role in looking after other banks or something? And I said, uh, and I basically said, oh, do you mean such as, and I think it was BCCI or something like that, which the Bank of England had been actually involved in and BCCI had gone bust. So obviously the Bank of England hadn't done it very well and I just, pointed this out to them so unsurprisingly they didn't offer me a job um in this turned out to be a blessing complete blessing I mean there was a disappointment of course at one level it'd be nice to be offered a job um Bank of England sounds prestigious but um another person who was on the same degree scheme had also got as far as the second interview and uh, we met up back in Sheffield and he said um 
did you notice anything strange going around the building? And obviously, going for the interview, you get to be sort of behind the scenes and so on, not just out in the customer-facing bits. And I was just like, what do you mean? He said, did you see a single person smile all day? And I was just like, no. He goes, no, me neither. And we were like, we've dodged a bullet. Because <laughs> if they'd offered it, we would have taken it. I mean, anybody in their right mind probably would, but we dodged bullets. I mean, we've not getting that, and I'm sure the Bank of England is lovely to work for, disclaimer, disclaimer, um, went out and did the JET program. So I was uh, an ALT um, in Settle, just outside Nagoya. And my idea was that I was going to do this for at least three years. I mean, as you probably know, JET is officially a one-year contract, but it can be renewed. And in those days, it could be renewed a maximum of um, twice, so you could do three years in total. Um, so I was thinking that was it. I'm, I'm off to Japan for three years. Um, and I packed virtually all of my possessions into tea chests and had them sent out to Japan. They didn't even get there until November. Um, and of course, I'd forgotten that some of them would, I mean, some of the electronic stuff wouldn't even work properly because it needs 240 volts being British stuff. And in Japan, it doesn't get that. Um, but by December time, both my wife and I, my wife uh, and girlfriend at the time, but now wife, um, she was also on jet. We both basically decided we wanted to change. And she looked to change up from ALT to CIR, which was possible. And she went for an interview for this. And if she got that position, I was going to quit JET and just become your standard sort of Eagle sensei at a Nova or something like that, because she would have been in Kobe. Um, and so there wouldn't have been any problem finding something. Um, my memory is that um, there was a couple of people do, trying to do the same thing, but one of them was from a sister city of Kobe. So they got the job. Um, again, it kind of worked out well for us because she, I mean, the interview happened in Kobe, I think almost 12 months of the day between, before the Hanshin earthquake. So had she got the position, we would have both been in Kobe at the time. And obviously the odds are stacked in the side of survival, but even so. So having not got that, we were then sort of thinking, what shall we do? And I think my wife had already started thinking, maybe come back to the UK and do a master's. And I started looking into this and it's just like, well, I'm not sure I really want to do a master's because, I mean, we used to have master's students sitting in our undergraduate classes, so I couldn't really see what would be useful for me to learn that I wasn't, that I already didn't know. And if they're not doing the study side, it's the language side. And again, I sort of think, well, my language is fine. I've got a degree. Um, so why do I need to be doing that? Then I started thinking, well, why do people do master's? What What's it lead to? Academic career. And it's just like, Maybe that's what I should be doing. It's just like do a PhD, become an academic. I'm enjoying this ALT teaching lark. My mum was a teacher and so on as well. I thought, well, why not? So at that point I thought, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a PhD. Not knowing what the topic would be particularly at that time. And you've got to remember, we're talking a time here before email and stuff. So I was now writing a letter to my former uh, undergraduate supervisor, dissertation supervisor, Professor Glenn Hook sort of saying, I'm looking to do a PhD. Could I apply to Sheffield? And these are the sort of topics I'm interested in. And he wrote back and sort of said, any of those topics are fine. I got, as I'm speaking to you, I got a vague memory. We may even have spoken 
on the telephone as well at some point, but I think it happened by post probably. Um, you basically said any of those topics are fine and yes, do apply. And it just so happened Sheffield was doing a massive expansion of its PhD program. I think in 94, they went from having about two or three students enrolled to about 20 of us almost overnight. And I managed to get a very modest bursary as well, but basically it sealed the deal. So uh, having sent all my worldly possessions out to Japan, which I got there four months after I got to Japan, I then had to start the process of sending them all back to the UK, this time not using T-chests, but going down to the Yubin Kyoku to send them back. And literally I had a few parcels where every single side of the parcel had stamps on. They, they didn't print out the the amount they literally just covered the whole thing in stamps it was very attractive um i sent all of those back and um yeah went back to sheffield to do to do the phd um having finally kind of decided what my topic would be and i hope we can kind of explore how your research interests change over time because i know you've had quite a few different um uh, research interests and specializations so far in your career uh, but what was it that you went back and you you started on with your PhD and, and why did you choose the topic that you did? Sure. So I wanted to do something related to children broadly, based purely on I've been on the JET program. I mean, I had I had three main interests. Um, one was to do something to do with children. One was um, to do something related to the Shinkansen and railways, which had been the plan for my undergraduate dis dissertation. But as I mentioned earlier, I couldn't find materials. I mean, I literally I went around bookshops. Um, in 1990, summer 92, it would have been asking if they had books on railway Shinkansen and it'd be like one, maybe two books. And I bought those, but it wasn't enough to do an undergraduate dissertation on. So I didn't do that. In the end, my undergraduate dissertation was about the creation of the J-League, um, which was very interesting in Japan's plans to host the 2002 World Cup. The downside of doing that topic, which was a lesson I didn't learn properly on which we can come back to in relation to one of my novels, was that it's not good to be writing about something when the thing hasn't happened yet because the J-League didn't kick off until about a month or two after I handed in my dissertation. So the news was constantly changing, but uh, I was actually very happy with the dissertation. And um, it's what some lectures refer to as a new style dissertation because I, it was very visual. I had a lot of photographs and pictures in there, which I think has become much more of a Norman dissertation and more of a Norman academic publishing as well. So. Um, and that may come in partly from my interest in imagery, but partly also sort of studying consumer behavior and things like that from business. I don't know. Um, so the second one was railways, but I still had a concern that maybe I wouldn't be able to get sufficient materials. And then my third interest was to do with um, something to do with earthquakes, disasters. And as I said, Glenn Hook had said any of those basically fine in a way that wouldn't happen now. I mean, these days, if we got a PhD application with a personal service saying, I'm kind of interested in these topics, what do you think? And I mean, you wouldn't say, yeah, that's fine. And it's just like, right, what's your research question? What sources have you already read? I mean, you wouldn't get away with that these days. You um, get flashbacks to the, uh, the application process. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, and a lot of, I mean, in the end, I went for the children one more than any other reason because of something I was taught when I was probably, I mean, we're, we're talking probably when I was about 10 years old, give or take, when each week at school, we would write an essay. And the English teacher said, always write about something you've got experience on. 
brackets whenever you can. And I thought, here I am. I've been inside the education system. I've seen the kids. I've got a perspective. It's, it's not field work, but I can use that experience. And so I started thinking this is probably the direction I want to go in, but I didn't really want to be focused purely on education. It didn't sound very interesting to me, um, but I didn't know what the angle would be yet. And I started reading a couple of additional books. I mean, I'd obviously read some books about Japanese education system and so on um, for my undergraduate studies, but uh, I picked up a couple of others while visiting. I mean, because I had Nagoya on my doorstep, there was Kinokuniya and they had a selection of English language books and so on. So I think I picked up a couple of books there. And some of the things that I read there really made me think I need to be doing something related to this because I was reading things where it's just like, um, I mean, the, the phrase that always jumps out, there's one book, I won't comment on which book and which author, be a bit disingenuous of me, said, um, Japanese children are always so, so well behaved and polite. And I, I, literally, I, was, I was in the staff room at the time at one of the schools I was teaching, having just come from a class and knowing which class I was teaching next. And it's just like, are you kidding me? When I got kids who throw snowballs at me in the classroom, I got kids who kick me up the backside. They never shut up, some of them. I and mean, some of them you can't get to talk, but some of them won't shut up. What sort? And if I go past a math class or whatever, it's noisy. What are they talking about? And then the penny dropped when I looked into the details of this uh, person a little bit more. It's just like, I don't know if they speak Japanese. So maybe they've gone with some Ministry of Education officials to a school and suddenly I started thinking, yeah, in that situation, everybody's going to be on their best behavior. And I thought, here I am. I've basically been a fly on the wall. I can use this. And although in the end, my PhD, which then I converted into a monograph, didn't really use the schools I taught as a case study, it helped to frame my way of thinking because I knew I could pull back on those experiences and think about what the reality was at the Gemba kind of thing. As I say, when I got into it, it turned out it was going to be much more about education than children because it was difficult to actually find how do you write a study about Japanese children? I didn't really want it to be too comparative because, I mean, you can do a whole PhD about Japanese children. You could do a whole one about British children. Trying to fit both of those into one PhD gets very difficult. Um, but then I came across some texts talking about how there have been education reforms in the 80s. I thought, OK, let's look a little more into this. Um, and a book, very good book, talking about how the reforms didn't happen. And I thought, yep, sounds very convincing. And yep, this makes sense with what thing I know about Japan being conservative, not changing, and so on. And I started thinking about some of the aspects. I thought, okay, why didn't it change? How didn't it change? This is this could be what my study would become on. My PhD supervisor had actually said he, because he had an interest in politics, my PhD was likely to get more of a politics influence. So. Uh, about six months in, I wrote a sort of summary of where I got to so far. Um, and he sort of said, it's becoming very political, isn't it? And it's just like, I'm pretty sure that's the direction you wanted me to go in, but okay. Um, and so it was going on that basis, um, but there was already something niggling in the back of my mind with this. And then went out to Japan, um, this time as a PhD student, looking after the students going out to Japan in the same way as I had done during my summer term back in, 1990 they were actually the last cohort to do that before Sheffield moved over onto full year-long study um, and whilst out there I went and did a couple of uh, did some interviews for my PhD and as a result of those interviews my research did a complete 180 turn because I suddenly realized actually many of the reforms which have been proposed in the 80s were now being implemented 
So worse that I had nothing against the book which I'd read by Leonard Shopper, who said the reforms didn't happen. My view was that he was just writing in 1991, I think it was, too soon. It's only four years on. Whereas another few years later on, you could see that certain things are happening. And I'm sure Nakasone, who partly kickstarted all this, would have loved things to happen during his time as prime minister so he could take credit of them. My argument was that actually in terms of long-term implementation, this gradual process was likely to have a much longer lasting impact. Um, so that was what I did the PhD on and then converted to a monograph as part of the Sheffield series. I mean, we were all persuaded to go in that direction, but it wasn't my passion. And I really didn't want to do anything more with it. I mean, studying Nakasone was probably more interesting at times than the education side of things. So I was ready to take on a, a fresh challenge. And for a while, I wasn't really doing anything. So after getting the PhD, I actually worked at Sheffield University, but not in an academic unit. And they had, used to have something called East Asia Business Services. And we were looking at basically trying to set up more language school type things. I mean, for me, it was just, it's paying bills. And it meant my commute from home to, uh, to the office. I think my record from locking the door to getting in the front door of my office, I think my record was 43 seconds. It was that close. Um, it's, it's as close to having a lockdown situation before we have lockdowns as, as you could get, I guess. So it was a very nice situation, albeit my girlfriend, now wife, was, still, was down in London. So we were only seeing each other at weekends. But it was fine. It, it was paying some bills and so on. But I wanted to get down to London if I could. And in the end, I just thought I, I need to bite the bullet. I'd been invited to give a talk down at Atom House. And then they invited me to become an associate fellow there. So at that point, I thought, stuff it. I'm leaving Sheffield. I don't have a full-time job, but I'm going down to London. Just take a chance kind of thing. And through Chatham House and people just knowing I was available, I was able to get various other bits of part-time work, including doing some part-time lecturing. So uh, covering for colleagues at Winchester College and also at Birkbeck. Um, so boosting the CV. And then in the summer, spring, summer 2000, um, saw an advert for Cardiff. They actually had two adverts. One was for a lecturer and one was for director of the Japanese study center. So I thought, yeah, apply for lecturer. Then I thought, I'm unemployed, but I've actually got a lot of management experience. I mean, my, my role at East Asia Business Services has been business development manager. I've studied business at degree level. I thought, I've got nothing to lose. So I applied for the director's position as well, writing out word for word. I mean, again, this is paper copy. I mean, the world had moved on to the internet, but I'm, my memory is that this was a paper application, writing out word for word the same thing but basically adding one sentence saying, despite my relative youth, I believe I have the skills and qualifications to be a director. And I think that was back in March of 2000, roughly. Hadn't heard anything, which I was a bit surprised about. And I think it got through to about May. And I thought, I'm surprised I didn't even get called for an interview. So I got in touch with them and said, have I just not been called for an interview? Because I thought at the very least they'd let you know Thanks for your interest, but sorry. Whereas I now know that's actually not what happens. If, if you're not called for shortlisting, you're basically tough. You, you, you never find out. But anyway, I chased them up and uh, got an email back. So sort of saying, would you be able to come for an interview next week? <laughs> okay. um, so took the train to Cardiff 
very shocked about the cost of a train to go to Cardiff. It's like, I think even back in 2000, it was we're talking well over £100 because I was going at a peak time and stuff like that for a firm ticket. Got to Cardiff, and it turned out on the day that they were interviewing for both the positions, and they'd called four of us for interviews, keeping in mind there are two positions. So already I'm thinking, odds are looking good here, and only three of us turned up. <laughs> At which point I'm thinking the odds are looking really good. During the course of the face-to-face interview, it turned out that one of the people who'd been interviewed was actually in Chinese rather than Japanese, but they thought to interview them just in case the business school of which the Japanese Studies Centre was a part was thinking to diversify. Uh, and they, I mean, basically the person during the interview admitted this probably wasn't what they were going to do now. And as I was thinking, right, so it's gone from four down to three, down to two, down to two, two positions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on the way back to London, I actually bought, bought a local newspaper to start looking at property. I mean, Blinking cocky now, I think about it. <laughs> Another time, thinking about it. Um, I also remember being struck by how pretty Cardiff had become. I'd visited there back in about 1990 because one of my Japanese friends lived near Cardiff because uh, of his dad's work. Um, and I'd also gone there for a badges conference in 1998, literally the day after I'd handed in my PhD thesis and so on. And both times I thought, Cardiff was a miserable, dirty city. <laughs> in 2000, I thought I got off at the wrong station. It had completely transformed. I think it was the only place in Britain where the word millennium did some good. It was complete regeneration going on, which has continued to today in many respects. So anyway, I thought my odds were good. And on the Friday, I got a phone call um, and they said, uh, thank you for coming. They actually, the person who interviewed me was actually the one doing the phone call. He was the head of the business school. And he said, so, so it's the head of the business school there. I don't know if you remember me. It's only yesterday. Yeah, I remember. Um, <laughs> yes, we'd like to offer you the position. Oh, wonderful, yes. We'd like to offer you the position of director. <laughs> okay. Keeping in mind, I was 29 at this time. And I said, well, I'm not prepared to accept it over the telephone. I've been messed around with things like this before. And he goes, okay, okay. Well, it is legally binding. And I go, yeah, yeah. I'd still like to see it in writing. He goes, okay. Could you at least tell me if you are inclined to accept it? Said, yeah, I'm probably inclined. Put down the telephone, just started laughing my head off. It's just like, yeah, I wasn't going to take it. I'm unemployed. It's the choice. Um, so, uh, yeah, started working in Cardiff in August of 2000. And I mean, one of the key things when I started was that, as I said, I was 29, which meant that even compared to the most of the undergraduates, I was only seven years older. And the final year students and we had some mature students and so I mean I used to wear suits to work almost every day just to make sure people could see a division and so on um, but I settled into the role very quickly and in many respects it was a great role because we a lot of the time we were left alone we were a small smallish center but we were treated as a school within a school and so uh, it and what I hadn't known um, which is part of the reason why I guess there were so few applications, is that there were rumours going around that Cardiff was shutting down Japanese. And this is why there were vacancies. And how far along the line it got, I don't know. I mean, maybe if they hadn't appointed anybody, maybe Cardiff would have gone the way of, I think, virtually all of the other centres that were set up in 89. Um, I think they all gradually closed. Cardiff, I think, is the only one that kept going until effectively we merged to become part of a new school of modern languages. 
but it seems as though that rumor had got around. I mean, it was being written about in student newspapers. There was a lot of angst and anger amongst students. And so I think that put a lot of people off applying. Um, as it was, they didn't fill the lecturer's position. So I was the only one appointed that year. The following year, with me sort of having my feet under the desk and uh, making sure I'd be firmly knew the message, we are not shutting down, everything's fine. We, our numbers were already going to start turning the corner in terms of student recruitment and so on. We advertised again for the lecturer, and this time we had 33 applications um, <laughs> and a very high standard as well, which if I'm totally honest, I'm not even sure if I would have got shortlisted that time because I didn't, my book hadn't quite come out yet and I didn't have some of the publications other had so on. So uh, a lot of luck involved. So a combination of having the, the lucky joke bumping into a friend and deciding to study Japanese and then luckily no one else applying for this job. But um, luck's played its part in getting me to where I am. I mean, in a way, it is very comforting to hear that you don't have to have everything planned out in order to make a career, um, especially in the field, because I think for a lot of students, it always um, appears like that, that you have to have your first, like that you're next, and then that, that one after the step already planned out. But as I think the series has come to show that like for a lot of people, that just wasn't the case. I, I would say um, it's the opposite. The less you plan, the better. All you can do is just keep on beefing up your CV. Um, I think these days there's a certain tick box exercise and element to it that you really need to be able to show that you can get some sort of research grants, which let's face it in Japanese studies tends to be relatively small. It's about getting some money for a 2000 pound field trip or something like that. We're not generally talking sort of hundreds and thousands of pounds. Um, having a few publications under your belt, doing some presentations, but also being able to show that you can teach, you've got certain management skills, organization skills. These are the things that get asked about. And being prepared to be versatile. I think these are key things. I think the more people try to plan and structure uh, and think, I will do this to do this, which of course is natural because I mean, many people do go on this almost conveyor belt. You go to primary school, you go to secondary school, you an undergraduate you do an ma you do a phd and next i'm going to be a postdoc or i'm going to be a lecturer and it's just like nah you're probably not not for quite a while not unless you get lucky um you might have to do something else first um you might have to just be almost living off more scraps than you were even as a phd for a student for a bit it, it, it's tough it's it's very competitive out there uh, and i think the more people realize that actually they might have to even go into the real world and do a paid job for a period of time, probably the better. But I think that works both ways. But I remember my frustration when I was looking to go down to London that some people would not, I mean, including recruitment agencies, would not touch me because they saw I got a PhD. And one, they just assumed that I would only be interested in an academic job, which wasn't the case. I was happy to turn my back on academia at that point, if necessary. But they also thought there's no way I'd have any skills that would be useful in the real world because I was an academic. And it's just like, I'm pretty sure I've got transferable skills here. Um, so, I mean, and I still unfortunately think that exists. There's a lot of companies and recruitment agencies who need to wake up and realize that people who've done PhDs have got some amazing skills to offer. Um, but equally, people with PhDs need to realize that you might not get an academic job for quite some time, but don't panic go and do other things, pay the bills. And if academic things come up, great. If not, make the most of what you can do. And you were also mentioning that like a, 
being in a, in a relationship throughout this whole time and then also um, eventually um, starting a family together, like how did that influence your, your choices? Because obviously um, like a lot of times these job advertisements um, require such a, a big flexibility of people for only a very certain, like very limited amount of time. But um, I think a lot of times that also forgets to mention that like most of us have some kind of relationships and even if that be like a romantic or, or, or friends and, and family. So being ripped out of that just for the sake of, of a job is not the luxury everybody can afford because you have to keep um, looking after your mental health as well and, and where you feel comfortable. So how do you think um, that part of your life has been influenced um, yeah, or influenced your, your career choices in a way? It didn't influence career choice per se. It's had a huge impact on my research choice though. So I mean, when, so my wife was formerly my girlfriend, we've been going out together. We started dating basically Christmas of our first year at Sheffield. So we've been together since roughly December, 1989. Um, which is quite a long time. But for a lot of that time, it was weekends only. It's long distance relationship, I guess. I mean, when on the jet program, I was just outside um, Nagoya. She was on the northern coast of Hyogo Prefecture, which on a Friday, if I went, I mean, we tend to do alternating at weekends. I mean, NTT and JR West and JR Central did so well out of us that year on jet. Um, <laughs> If you got the right connections and stuff on a Friday, it could be done door to door in five hours. On a Sunday, it tended to be slower, about six hours. And then as a PhD student, I got freedom of time. I mean, particularly when I did a PhD, there was very there was a lot less in terms of having to study research methods and all these various other courses that you do. In fact, I managed to get myself exempted from all of them because I pointed out that virtually everything I was being asked to do, because it was about the first year they did it. The lecturers were taking shortcuts and creating courses which were based on stuff which they already taught us for like undergraduate stuff and I was just like well I've done all this stuff as an undergraduate I'm, I don't need to be taught statistics statistics is one of my hobbies I, I can do this so I managed to get my supervisor to get me exemption on basically the whole works so of course I had freedom of time with my wife was working down in London so I was the one who would travel down on Friday I would drive back usually on a Monday morning something like that and then so it was quite natural. I mean, obviously there was nine months or so when I was actually in London, but when I got the job in Cardiff, it was quite natural that I would come to Cardiff by myself. And again, we would see each other at weekends. And again, I think it was still primarily me that did traveling, but my wife came down a bit, particularly once I got my own place, she wanted to sort of have her own influence on that. <laughs> um, once we got married, we actually, it stayed the same. It wasn't until I think four weeks before my wife started maternity leave. So we're talking October of 2003 that my wife moved down to Cardiff and has been here ever since. And it flipped around the other way. So she went to working part-time hours um, after a while, but um, her work allowed her to just do two days in the office and work from home the rest of the time, which, I mean, I remember there were times in some of our accommodations, she'd be sat on the stairs having to do dial-up internet connection and everything. I mean, this is before broadband and Wi-Fi and everything. Um, but she'd go down on a Tuesday morning, stay with her mother overnight on the Tuesday night, and then come back up on the Wednesday evening. But when we've got first one child and then a second child, that meant on those days, I'm, when she's down in London, I've got childcare 
responsibilities and so on. But it also had an impact in terms of doing research. But because she needs to work, me going to do, go to Japan for field work is not very helpful, or even going to Japan to do a pastoral care trip. I mean, I was director of the Japanese Studies Center. I was in charge of the international agreements. It was obvious that I would normally do pastoral care trips. So what tended to happen for most of the trips during the period from 2003 through until, well, it still continues to now in reality, is that, um, well, until 20, January 2020, um, was the last time I went out before a lockdown kicked in, obviously, um, is that rather than her working Tuesday, Wednesday, two weeks as usual, when I wanted to go out to Japan, she would work the Monday, Tuesday. I would then get down to Heathrow on the Wednesday and fly out to Japan, getting me to Japan on Thursday, trying to make sure I got the flight that gets into Haneda at six o'clock in the morning so I can work the whole of Thursday, whole of Friday, do something Saturday, Sunday, work Monday, Tuesday, and then fly back on the Wednesday so my wife could then work in the office Thursday, Friday. So suddenly all of my research, all partial care has got to be done in basically four working days plus possibly weekends, which, I mean, I don't want to sound immodest or anything. I think for the average person they would struggle with, but my background to become very much, I mean, in going to Japan, had a lot of it been about using a JR pass. A lot of my trips have been like military missions since 1992. Um, I knew exactly where I was going to be every minute of the day because you can do that with Japanese trains on the whole. And I, I understood the infrastructure. And it also helped that by 2000, 2001, I decided to do research about Shinkansen. So just the process of traveling around also became research. Um, and I could, like even the weekend, I could take Shinkansen journeys and it was kind of field work without actually having to do interviews and so on. But it did mean a lot of my research. It was the tail wagging the dog. I knew I would have five or six days in Japan in order to achieve everything. They were intense days. I mean, when I'm in Japan, I mean, when I'm back in the UK, I like to try and get about eight hours sleep a day if I can. In Japan, if I get to four or five, I'm doing well because I know I'll be up at four or five in the morning, usually going somewhere to be on the first Shinkansen at six o'clock. And quite often you're going to be meet, doing things, going to meet Izakaya or whatever, and I won't get back to the hotel room until midnight, one o'clock, whatever it may be. Which when I was in my 20s and 30s, not too bad. Second half of the 40s, not quite so easy and I've uh, I'm, I have to admit I, shamefully that um, certain vitamin and energy drinks have done rather well out of me over the last few trips that I've been to Japan so I mean there, there's definitely an element where family plays a part and, and just to finish off that sort of my answer to Anna on this there's a number of us um, who've argued for a long time that we don't talk enough about this and I think now people are much more open about mental health issues and this side of things but I don't think it's been enough in academic work um, Ian Reader used to write about it I think in his books and I think there's a much easier place to write about it in books I think if you're writing an 8,000 word article and in your methodology you spend 100 words saying well I could only do x y and z because I got family responsibilities people are just like no you, you can't be wasting words on this and we don't care we don't want to listen to a sob story I think if you do it in a monograph works much more naturally but equally I mean I got a blog site and although I don't think I've written any posts about this yet it's probably one I probably should write more about um, is just the 
implications of relationships, friendships, and and so on on research. And I mean, these days, saying that I can only get to Japan for six days to do research. I mean, some people would be laughing because I mean, people are doing PhDs, and even myself trying to do research at the moment is like can't even get to Japan at all, let alone six days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're all tinkering our research to a certain degree about how much can we do online and and so on. So again, I think I got a certain head start on something because I'm used to the idea that a lot of research has to be done whilst not in Japan. Other times you also end up justifying your situation based on the circumstances. So uh, one of the things I've always said that's great about my short trips to Japan, and sometimes I go to Japan two or three times a year, is that it would give me time to get together all this massive information where I'm running around like a headless chicken doing all these various interviews, observations, but not always being able to properly absorb it. But then I get back to the UK and I would have time to absorb it and then think about, okay, what do I need to get from the next trip? Whereas I fear that in reality, if I went out to Japan for six months, a year, whatever, for a properly research funded or having a placement at university, if I'm honest, I'd probably spend 11 months enjoying being in Japan and then start scrapping around in the last month, actually do it, realizing I'm in meant to be doing something. I don't think I'd do that same absorption process. I think I just naturally assume I'm going to get it sometime during the 12 months and then go into panic stations towards the end when I realize I hadn't quite done it. I fear I may have just uh, broadcasted out on the podcast a good reason for me to fund me for a 12 month trip. Never mind. <laughs> no, I do think it's a really important issue to that the people do need to give thought to before they start on this kind of journey, before they start trying to plan having an academic career. And I, I think you're right. We, we do need to talk about it more and more. You know, I'm... Um, uh, I myself, I'm in a long-term relationship, um, and when I moved to Edinburgh to do my masters, you know, my my girlfriend basically packed up her whole life to to move to Edinburgh with me, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And you know, we've we've um, we've had a great time here, and I, I you know, I, I like to think she hasn't regretted that decision. But now I'm coming up towards the end of my PhD, um, and you know, you have those those that sudden realization of well, the whole plan was to go and try and get an academic career or try and turn this PhD into something. And now it's four years down the line and you know, my girlfriend's now established here. She's got a job that she's doing quite well in. We've, we've got a cat since we moved here. We're about to move into, into a new place. And you start to think, oh, well, it's not exactly fair if I now turn around and say, well, I finished my PhD now, so it's time to, to uproot and you know, we'll, we'll take, you know, if I can get a... a, a, a you know, a maternity cover contract or, you know, a short-term teaching job here or there, let's just go off. And I I do think it is something that we... And it's very difficult. I mean, my wife and I, the big discussion we had is at what point do you say you started something? Because, I mean, she started her job um, at a current company. She's been at the same company since 1996. You can tell we're both quite risk-averse people. We haven't changed our jobs in over two decades. And from her perspective, she started that then. Whereas from my perspective, I started my academic career in 1994 when I started my PhD. Um, yes, I've only been in Cardiff since 2000, but I track everything back to 1994. So, I mean, there are different viewpoints in this, but I think in the end, the key element in life generally, uh, my little nutshell fortune cookie moment is compromise. I think it's key to everything. I think, I mean, I've spoken about this before at some of the badges, Japan Foundation workshops that we do, that I think too many of us, when we're doing our PhDs, articles, chapters, books, are looking to do the perfect piece of work. And I think this is something that used to exist, particularly in the pre-ref kind of world, 
there's a lot of academics who are trying to write the perfect book and they were so desperate to get it perfect that in the end they never published anything at all. Now I hate Ref, I think there's a lot of problems with it, but at least it got us all publishing and realizing that it can still publish something that's worthwhile that has got compromise. And I think that's true for research, it's true for jobs, it's true for relationships. I think Japan's very good at teaching these sort of things as well, that um, although Japan, Japanese companies are well known for wanting their perfection, there's actually a lot of compromise involved as well. Sort of, And I think Tatemai lends itself to that sort of compromise that there are times where you just keep things going for the sake of the greater good and so on. And although it brings problems, it can bring problems for individuals that it puts a lot of pressure on in different ways. Um, I still think compromise is a key element in, in life. Absolutely. To go back to, to your uh, professional career then, how has your role at Cardiff developed then over the, the two decades that you've, you've been there? I believe your, your title now is Reader in Japanese Studies. Does that mean that the role itself has has um, changed significantly? Are you still di uh, director of the uh, of the Japanese studies side of things there now that yeah. it's merged with, with modern languages? Yes and no is the honest answer to that last one uh, from a very bizarre perspective. So, yeah, as I said, I started there in 2000 and um, my role had three key elements to it. So... I was appointed as the director of the Cardiff Japanese Studies Centre. And that was my primary role, which is um, a ad management administrative role. So my first job was to stabilise the ship, which I didn't even know was sinking, and then try and get us going in the right direction, which I'm happy to say, I mean, it was obviously a, a team effort. I can't take credit for the whole thing. It was the people who were already there, the appointments we made, the business school as a whole allowing us to do things it's also been able to take a it was the timing that the 2002 world coming up um world cup coming up and the sudden boom in manga and anime interest and so on that japan was sexy again and almost without having to do too much i think we would manage to recruit more numbers as it was we went from recruiting i think we had 12 students join in the september just after i started working and the next year we went up to about 20, I think it was. And the year after that, we were up to about 30. I mean, we, we saw numbers rocketing up. So, I mean, the, the admin side of things just kept me very busy, though, going to a variety of different committee meetings and so on. Plus, I had a number. I still have my Chatham House role as an associate fellow. So I was still going down to London once a month for things like that. There's obviously the teaching, which the first year was a steep learning curve. I'd only ever done one bit of teaching at university before when I was a PhD student and delivered a course to some students. Um, actually, sorry, I tell a lie. I'd also done some Japanese language teaching um, when I was doing my PhD as Arubaito as well. Um, otherwise, it just been some little bits helping out here and there, as I said before, but Beck and others. Um, but I had to create brand new modules, or at least I was told what the module was called and I had to create the contents because everybody else had disappeared. So... I mean, each week I was creating modules, which, I mean, these days we're given workload allowances and there's an expectation about how much time you could spend on these. I mean, if I think back to how much time I must be spending then, I mean, it's, it's amazing I was getting everything done. Plus, I was also doing research, which at this time I'd moved on to completely new research. Um, as I said, the conversion of the monograph was basically finished as I was being appointed at Cardiff. So that was done and dusted. I was literally just waiting for the printed copy to arrive. Um, but in 2000, 
I was persuaded to enter the Sir Peter Parker Japanese speaking contest. I'd entered the previous year and had got as far as the interview round. So they talked to you by telephone and uh, I didn't make it as a finalist. Um, and I wasn't inclined to go for it again, but as a favour to a friend who was uh, involved in the organisation and promotion of it, I said, OK, I'll go again. Thinking my Japanese must have still got worse because I, I mean, I was just going out to Japan for short trips. I wasn't really working my Japanese. I, I never considered myself a linguist, which is a, very ironic because I'm in a school of modern languages these days. But languages do not interest me. The analogy I always give is languages are of much interest to me as oxygen is to the average chemist. We both know that we need them to exist, but most of us don't actually want to study them, or at least I don't. Anyway, I entered the Sir Peter Parker Award and um, was somewhat shocked to discover that I'd been chosen as a finalist. It was even more shocking when I then won the final. One of the judges afterwards pretty much made it clear that technically somebody else had better Japanese than me, but I used it better that I, my confidence and there was a discussion bit rather than just a presentation. I had handled it and I could do the analysis with the language, which to me, that is what Japanese studies area studies is all about. It's just use the language as a tool and do something with it. The language in itself, in my view, is largely inherently useless. Sorry to all my Japanese language <laughs> colleagues. Um, but anyway, thanks to winning that, I was given a return ticket either business class or premium economy on JAL to go to Japan. Um, a thousand pounds spending money Ooh. and a one week JR pass. I think there could have been a few other bits and pieces, but those were the key ones. And by this stage, I'd also made contact with some people at JR Central because um, whilst at Sheffield, there was an academic there working on the railways and they always had one person on secondment from JR Central. And so I was already thinking, okay, I've gone an in now. Even if nobody's writing books about the Shinkansen, I can go straight to the company. I can finally do something I want, my research on something I want to do. So I decided I'd do it on the Shinkansen. Um, use my rail pass to travel around. JR Central were very happy to host me and take me on. I, I mean, I went in with the driver. I went to their factories and all sorts of stuff. So this became my new topic of research. And so for the next four years I mean it was much like doing a PhD that was my research was all about the Shinkansen um, and so that continued for that stage of my career and then when I finished the book about the Shinkansen it was another one of those moments like when you finish your PhD where you sort of like what do I do next and although there was my Shinkansen research has never stopped because I and, and to, to a degree neither is my research about well particularly Nakasone but even education because your research chases you. People associate you with certain things. And so sometimes people will say, are you still working on this? Can you do this? And particularly when it comes to things like the Shinkansen, there are so few of us doing it that if anybody wants to ask anything about Shinkansen, I tend to be one of the people they go to. Whereas actually, although, yes, it's about the Shinkansen, from my perspective, it's about Japan and using the Shinkansen as a tool to study Japan rather than the Shinkansen itself. So for a while, I was trying to think, what would I do next? And some of it was related to the Shinkansen, but I hadn't really found something I could get my teeth into. And then another sort of bizarre bit of luck, coincidences came together. So, and it all went back to the Peter Parker Awards again. 
I'd made friends with the person at Japan Airlines who was to be my liaison for sorting out my plane ticket. We remember the evening very well because he came to introduce, I mean, up on stage, they had one of those huge tickets, you know, that they hold up, <laughs> tickets and everything for the, for the photo shoot. And that was with the head of the Dow London office. But it was actually another man called Keith Haynes, who was going to be my liaison. And he came up to me um, during the drinks reception and introduced himself and said he was going to be the liaison. And he was still saying, oh, how he is from jail. And I said, oh, that's lovely. I actually prefer flying on Virgin. Not the most diplomatic thing to say, um, but it, it got our relationship off to a, a good start. We, did, we, we had a laugh at that. I mean, in reality, I think I only used Virgin twice and once before then and once subsequently. Uh, I've used Jowl many more times in reality over the years going to Japan. But he came my liaison person and we kept in touch. And quite often when I was in London, we'd get together from time to time to, for a drink or whatever. And he had another colleague who worked at the jail London office. And uh, one day the three of us were going to meet up, but Keith was running late. And the other guy, Robert Rigby, while we were chatting, so I said, did you, do you know about the jail 123 crash in 1985? And I said, yeah, 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 I remember it. And uh, I talk a bit about it in some of my lectures and so on to the students. And he goes, well, Keith was involved with that. There was one British family um, or British person on board, and Keith looked after the family. He went out to Japan with them and stuff. You should ask him about it when he comes along. A few minutes later, Keith turned up, and then Robert had to go, and it was like a relay tag team thing going on. So I got chatting with Keith, and um, so I said, Robert mentioned about this, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I'm coming up for retirement. After I'm retired, if you'd like, I could come and talk to your students about my experiences. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm sure they'd love it, thinking... <laughs> maybe they could I don't know and I couldn't really get my head around what how it would work for students turned it into an academic type thing well Keith retired the next year I think it was and invited me to his retirement party um, and reminded me that he was happy to come and do this seminar and I said yeah yeah okay let's set it up then um, so we set it up for the March of 2007 and we were again still meeting up in London, and I'm still going down to London once a week, or, sorry, once a month for um, the Chatham House talks. I, I, was, I continue arranging those right the way through until 2009. So 2007, I'm still going down on a regular basis, meet, meeting up with Keith. And um, Keith, one day, I think by email, sort of said, um, you know, for the seminar, maybe Peter Matthews, who was the father of the British victim on the flight, he should come along as well. And I was just like, What? are you sure he'd want to be talking about these things? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm sure Peter would be up for it. And I was just like, okay. So uh, next time I was down in London, the three of us met up at a pub. You're seeing a slight theme here, I suspect. Um, I'm not actually a heavy drinker, it's, and I blame it all on Japanese studies. Um, and so we got together, and um, Peter, I think even that time, brought a book with him. And he says, um, take these with you, you might find it useful for the seminar. And so without even looking at the, like opening it up or whatever, it's just like, what is this? And he goes, oh, while I was in Japan for that week, going out to um, try and identify my son's remains, I took photographs of everything. You could scan the photographs and use it for the seminar. It's just like, okay, this is different. And he goes, oh, and I kept a diary of everything as well. And at this point, my brain just went, bing, bing, hold on a second. There's something more I can do here. This is potentially more than just a seminar. 
And as the weeks went on, I started thinking, right, it's all very well that Keith and Peter, Peter agreed to come to do the seminar, will talk about their experiences. But if the audience don't know actually anything about the crash, keeping in mind we're talking about 2007, the crash happened in 1985, so we're 22 years on, their experiences are going to be sort of kind of empty and meaningless. So I said, look, we need an introductory bit. And they said, yeah, yeah, we agree. We can't do it though. And I said, okay, we'll make it a three-way seminar. I'll do the introduction. You two talk on your experiences. So that made me delving into things a little bit further. And I think we're now into January, 2007. By this time, little voices are saying, you can do something with this. There's, there's at least an article here. And then the more I kept on thinking about it, the more I thought it was literally, I mean, I'm not a religious person or anything like that, but it was literally like hearing a voice saying, you have to do this. As far as I remember, the news of the JAL crash was the first time I saw Japan in the news. Um, I remember it very specifically. I was 14 years old. We were on holiday in the south of France. And I remember seeing the English language newspapers on sale and the, and the news agents talking about the crash. Um, and we went back to Britain a few days later. My mum had to get back. She was in charge of uh, A-level type stuff. I mean, it was A-level result week, so we had to get back. Um, and it was still news that week. And then when I was at uh, high school, talking to my, I remember talking to my Japanese friends about the crash at one point. And then later on, one of the friends that my wife made out on the jet program, it turned out that her father was on the plane. So all these things were coming together and I was sort of thinking, not only can I do this, I really ought to. There's just, there's too many things I could do here. So it went from being an article to a book quite quickly in my mind. And thinking like the Shinkansen one, it'd be a means to study aspects of Japan rather than purely about the crash. And I wasn't interested in investigating the cause of the crash because I thought, well, that's a known. I'd done a literature research. There's basically nothing written in English. I then started checking about books in Japanese and found that there was loads of them. And just by the way, in terms of the Shinkansen, when I started doing my research about the Shinkansen, it was a golden age of the Shinkansen. I mean, there was literally 10 to 20 new books about Shinkansen coming out every year. Compare that to when I tried doing it as an undergraduate topic when there was nothing, um, which was great other than my, it meant I was bringing back a lot of books every time I went to Japan. Um, so I ordered these books from Japan um, using Amazon and everything, um, arrived very quickly and I started working through these and I could, I could start to see an angle, but I still hadn't decided exactly what I would do. And the main thing I was thinking was I didn't want to do anything too morbid. I remember at one point even looking into how can I do the research without even having to go to the crash site? And in the end, I realized I couldn't. And so the August of 2007, so you can see this has all moved forward very quickly. I went out I think that time I only went to Japan. I think I arrived in Japan on the Thursday, maybe. And I was back in the UK on the Monday um, because I was dealing with A-level results. I was admissions tutor as part of my role as director. Um, I did interviews at JAL on the Friday and I was up in Uenomura on the Saturday, Sunday, and that was it. And I soon realized this was one of those projects, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it, not just in terms of research, but as a human as well. Uh, and so it just grew and grew and grew and went on and on and on for a variety of reasons. I mean, academics were always good at pushing back deadlines, but there was, there was always good reasons for this because I realized that certain anniversaries are important. So rather than finishing in 2009, I thought I had to include the anniversary in 2010 because it was a round numbered one and so on. 
So that became my key research and the JAL crash research still continues, although I've been doing other projects. But going back to the question you asked, what seems like half an hour ago, probably for you, in terms of what happened in my role, in many respects, not a huge difference during that stage. It was just my research was changing. Um, I got promoted. Um, I mean, I came in straight at senior lecturer, which was lucky because I was director of the center. They told me that I was probably going, the head of the business school, I think, said I'd probably come in at lecturer on a, a not necessarily a particularly high salary because of this being my first appointment. Um, HR had other ideas and said for director, he has to be senior lecturer. And then I got promoted to reader in 2007 on the back of having had two books out and so on. Um, but I've been stuck at reader for a long time for reasons I won't necessarily go into at the moment. And then uh, the role didn't really change significantly until um, from about 2011 onwards, it was clear the business school really did want to get rid of us. And so we started trying to look for a new home within the university. Um, it was that or potentially we would finally be shut down. We had agreed a new home at one point, but the previous vice chancellor pulled the plug without ever explaining why the plug had been pulled. And then subsequently, a bit short time or a year or two after that, discussions began about the creation of a new school of modern languages, and we were asked if we'd want to join it. Um, my honest feeling was at the time, not really, but it was it was that or continued threat. I thought at least we would be with people who would kind of understand us. Um, so we merged with them. So at that point, the officially the Cardiff Japanese Studies Centre ceased to exist, but they've never actually changed my contract. So my contract still says I'm the director of the Cardiff Japanese Studies Centre, even though it doesn't exist. So that's where I am at the moment. But equally, um, I'm getting to a point in my life where, I mean, I've been in Cardiff for 21 years. I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm generally risk averse, but um, I'm finally getting very, very itchy feet. So um, I suspect if we did a repeat podcast in five years' time, I'm hoping, actually, quite honestly, that I won't be at Cardiff at that point. It's time for a change. And you've mentioned before that you've been to Cardiff before in Badges con uh, conferences before you get appointed. So um, just to have a little bit of a um, highlight of, of, of what Badges do when you're being a president for, for a while now um, mm -hmm. of Badges as well. So how, how did you get into that role and how did you kind of as being a participant and being in the Japanese study scene in the UK for a while, then kind of got more involved with the organization? Sure. The short flippant answer to why I ended up being present is probably because nobody else would. Um, and I'm hoping this is one of the things that might change going forward. I mean, if, if it does, I am going to claim it as a kind of badge of honor kind of thing. Um, I mean, I've been on Badges Council many times over the years as an elected member, as treasurer, and so on. Um, but finding someone prepared to take on the role of president has often been difficult. Um, I mean, we actually, to be perfectly honest, even now we find it quite difficult to, to get people to come on Badges Council. Quite often, I mean, we quite often have vacancies available and we do a shout out. And if you'd like to put yourself forward, let us know. And we get stunned silence. There's a lot of sort of leaning on people historically has had to happen. And I was one of the people who was lent on. And I was delighted to be lent on, to be perfectly honest. I mean, for me, it was a very natural role. Um, I was used to being in a very visible role from 
all the time I've been an associate fellow at Chatham House, that meant I would tend to be the go-to person whenever the, any news related to Japan cropped up, the media would come to me as the first point of contact. Um, so I was used to that visible side. I was used to being director of the Japanese Studies Center and so on. Um, so I was used to the leadership role. So for me, it was like, and I've been involved with council. So it seemed a very natural thing to do. And I think I had certain things I wanted to achieve as president and badges to do as well. But I've also been realistic. So I mean, recently we've changed the constitution of badges. It officially changed on the 1st of May of um, Rewa Ganden, which I think is a lovely coincidence. I'm not saying there's some support of the imperial family or anything. It's just it, the timing worked out very memorable. The fact that May the 1st is also my birthday um, was a nice little coincidence. But one of the things that we changed was the composition of council to take account of the fact that although we have about 200 members, we have many members who are essentially passive members who like to take advantage of being members without necessarily giving anything to the association. And I've got nothing against that, don't get me wrong. Um, we are all busy in different ways and people are at different stages of their career, whatever it may be. I think it's the responsibility of the president and council to make an association that works, that takes account of that. So one of the things we did was streamline the council and say, look, we don't actually need as many people on council. Let's not make this overcomplicated. And part of that was just looking at what we do. So, I mean, Badges has changed so much in the years that I've been a member. I mean, I remember going to Badges AGMs when I was a PhD student and there's constant talk of disputes about something, financial problems. It wasn't necessarily a happy environment, even though Japanese studies was happy. Badges itself always felt as though there was angst and tension there. I think a lot changed thanks to um, Glenn Hook, second time at least his name's come up um, this afternoon, who I think there's no other way of putting it. He, he was essentially a visionary in realizing that um, by doing a negotiation with Taylor and Francis and the way that our house publication Japan Forum was done could bring in revenue. And it does. And I can be quite open about the figures because it's reported in our AGM and they have to be open because of the um, reporting to the Charity Commission. Japan Forum for us brings in around about £60,000 a year in income. And when I talk to the presidents of the British Association for Chinese Studies or British Association for Korean Studies, I mean, their situation is completely different. They're like what we used to be. They're reliant on membership fees. We're not. And I mean, recently we've cut membership fees for free for some of our members because we basically said, look, you've been paying for so many years, stop paying. BBC won't let you have a free TV license. Well, the least we can do is reward you for all your efforts for Japanese studies over the years by giving you free badges membership. But that 60,000 pounds a year immediately means a difference because then it means we can do something for our community. And the focus has always been on the PhD students. Um, we know that PhD students don't want to be doing bar work or whatever it may be. In fact, you two at Edinburgh, you can't even do bar work. I've, I've been an external <laughs> examiner and done reviews for Edinburgh, and I know the various challenges you first face and the restrictions you've had on part-time jobs that you can do and so on. So we've wanted to fund things. And so that we've had a number of scholarships and systems over the year. And the key thing, one of the key changes that I brought in is that one of our flagship bits of funding is the John Crump Scholarship which historically, I think there used to be one or two a year given out, about £3,000, I think it was, which is a big chunk of money. 
but I had major issues with this when I looked again at the application form and the process, because it's for students entering that gray zone where you are officially a PhD student, but actually the university would rather you weren't a PhD student and quite often it's difficult to get other funding. It's what used to be known as the writing up year, but of course these days you're doing writing up from about week one of your PhD in your very first year. Um, but people in reality are still editing and writing in that period and it's difficult to get funding, plus you don't really don't want to be doing part-time jobs if you can avoid it during this time. So the John Crump was set up to fund that period. Um, but our form application process was very much centered around questions like, what, what is your research about? Why is it significant and important? And then asking your referee, are you doing a good job? And I turned around to the rest of the council and said, these are stupid questions. They're in their final year of a PhD. Clearly they're doing a good job. Otherwise they wouldn't have been able to progress to this stage. Clearly their research is significant in some way. Otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do this PhD. The only question we really need to ask is, do you need money? Now, short of asking for people to send bank statements, we know the answer to that question is gonna be yes. So I said, let's cut the chase here. Everybody is gonna be deserving of funding. So rather than giving out one or two big grants to a couple of people on a basis where I'm not even sure we should be doing it on that basis, because it's making trying to make an academic judgment rather than a financial judgment and so on, Let's just give out a little bit to everybody on a six month basis. We will potentially funding a full 12 months if people need it. It means that people in total will, could get 2,000 pounds or thereabouts, 2,400. So, but it's been shared now amongst the whole community. We got the money to do this. But because we moved on to that system, rather than spending two hours looking through lots and lots of applications, trying to work out who is most worthy, the only thing we now have to do is can we find a reason why we're not allowed to fund them? And sometimes the answer is yes, because they're not actually in their writing up stage yet or something like that. There'd be some technicality, but generally all we need to do, and we have an executive secretary to do this. And again, the finances mean we can pay somebody to do this. It's not another academic trying to do this on top of their new usual jobs. Basically, we can just sit there and go, everybody happy to fund all these people for the four months that they've asked for? Yeah, okay, move on. That's a five minute job. We don't need a huge council to do this. So we could cut back on the council numbers, which then, I mean, obviously pre-Zoom days and so on meant that you're not having to pay so many train fares for people to go to meetings. There are slight financial savings there. But you don't need so many people. Um, so we can have a streamlined council, which then means we don't need so many people on council, which in theory will make it easier to persuade people to come on council because also the jobs don't seem quite as arduous as they used to. And so I hope that... I mean, my time as president officially comes to an end September 2022. Um, so as long as nobody comes in and uh, deposes me before then or anything like that, or I decide to step down beforehand, I got a little over 18 months to go. And it's probably January time 2022, maybe even in the AGM of this year, we'll effectively be firing the starting gun and sort of saying, if you're interested in becoming president, let us know. And I sincerely hope I would take it a massive badge of honor and take immense pride in if we actually get people saying, yes, I want to take this on, because I really hope that would be a sign that I've helped to transform the association and the role itself, that people really want to do this rather than us having to go out and twist arms and try and persuade some mug to do it like I did. I mean, both of us, Matt and I, we, we have had, or we part, did um, go to some of the embedded uh, organizations 
organize PhD seminars and um, this podcast wouldn't wouldn't be happening if you wouldn't have um, the support uh, of Badger. So at, at this point, I just want to say thank you for that because um, I think especially the networking that uh, both of us were able to do at these events just made our PhD journey and I'm, I'm pretty sure even like our continuous academic journey just something much more connected um, with other people we have have a network that yes here in Edinburgh we we know everyone who is doing a PhD in Asian studies and, and Japanese studies even more mm. so but it is nice to to know that oh for example there's a book I I can't uh, get from the library here somebody down in in, in Norwich or in Cardiff or at SOAS um, can help me with access that resource and it's just uh, been very much uh, yeah showing us that there is a community uh, around it and that um, us doing a PhD is not happening in a vacuum and I think um, everyone who has the opportunity to partake in any of the events uh, is, is such a huge plus to the study experience and the PhD I, I'm experience. I'm really glad to hear that because I mean we, we see it as a massive plus as well. Um, so I mean just some for more information then on some of the funding and events that we do. So in addition to the John Crump obviously we fund for PhD students to go to conferences and so on um, and I mean I think we've already started funding sometimes when people want to go to a Zoom one it doesn't necessarily have to involve travel but uh, sometimes I mean we, we can do yay and nays a lot quicker than some funding bodies or universities can um, so we are a source of sort of funding for that as you said we are involved with events so I mean we have our own conference once every three years we'd also do a joint one with um, the two other associations Korean and Chinese once every three years on average as well um, and then in the years when there's the European Association for Japanese Studies, we normally don't do a conference because we think people will be all conferenced out by then. So um, we don't tend to organize anything in that year. But every year um, we tend to have the workshop jointly run with the Japan Foundation, which you were referring to. Um, and we try to work on the basis that over the course of a typical three or four year period when a PhD student um, will be doing their PhD, we try to change the theme so they get to see a little bit of a different theme each time. So some are more sort of related to how do you do prepare your work to for impacting outside academia? How do you develop your social media profile? How do you actually just present on a topic? Um, how do you get into an academic career? These various things and develop skills. Um, and as I said, some of, and as you were really talking about, some of this is just building up a, a network because that's what a lot of this is about. And that's still, I think, the one thing that Zoom can't completely replace. I mean, my understanding is the workshop worked very well this year, but it's still not the same as getting everybody in one place and making friendships and having a good chat and so on outside, sort of just pure academic stuff. Because in the end, a lot of you are going to become colleagues and get to see each other at conferences for the next, dare I say it, 30 40 years um, so I mean badges needs to do its own bit in sort of bringing you all together I mean it's not a matchmaking exercise per se but it's it's helping to sort of create that network and we keep offering to do other things I mean there have been at times a sort of postgraduate network and so on in a sort of kind of formalized section of, of badges and so on but it's it's still there in the shadows but I think the dynamic can work in different ways these days. And obviously there are other funding schemes out there. I mean, things 
thanks to the incredibly generous funding by the Great Britain Sassicar Foundation. Um, they obviously have their studentships and they have their own network of things. So I think we all need to be thinking about, let's not reinvent the wheels here. Let's just work together. And I think uh, the nature of things is that students are getting much better at just developing groups, whether it's through Facebook, WhatsApp or whatever, that actually it doesn't need badges to be involved in the organization. It perhaps just needs us to be involved sometimes in putting some money into something and some events. As you said, obviously you've been involved with this particular project, um, which has had the podcast and so on. We have funded a few projects in the past. This is going to be one of the last ones at the moment we're doing, partly because we'd rather put money directly into the hands of PhD students rather than necessarily um, research projects or whatever. But there'll be times where somebody might come to us and say, actually, we need funding for something like this. And it's not doesn't quite fit with what Bioware or Sasakawa or Japan Foundation, Endowment Committee or Japan Foundation would fund. How about badges doing it? And obviously, as long as we can do it in a way that is fair and open, it doesn't look as though we're just funding projects which are run by friends or whatever, then we would always look into doing things like this. And I think, I mean, your podcast is obviously going to be coming to an end at some stage or another, but I think it's coming to the a great time because um, obviously Badges has its own podcast now, just launched um, earlier this year, taking over from um, essentially a podcast which was very centered around Japan Forum. The new podcast is much more of a general Badges. So I, I think those sort of things have timing wise have come together at a great time. But uh, I think for anybody listening to this, particularly PhD students and MA students as well, I always forget to talk about MA students, but uh, I was reminded of this recently that uh, We've got an MA student at Cardiff who's um, just on one of sort of the more generic MAs. It's not specifically in Japanese studies, but she actually went to the workshop um, earliest year, the Badges Japan Foundation workshop, and they suddenly realised how badges can reach beyond just those doing MAs and PhDs in Japanese studies. And potentially these are the sort of people who we can then bring into the fold even more, and they might go from master's on to PhD. But the, the key message is that... Um, for any of you postgraduates out there who've got ideas about ways we can help you, get in touch with us. Go on the Badges website. Our contact details are there. There's Twitter, there's Facebook, whatever. If you've got ideas, let us hear them. And I keep saying this again and again and again. And generally, we don't hear a great deal, which I'm not going to say it's disappointing because, of course, the more people email us, the more work it creates for me to read emails and respond to them and think about them. But equally, it can save us time in other ways because otherwise we start trying to come up with clever ways of spending the money. Uh, and we do want to be spending this money on, as I said, particularly the postgraduate students. Brilliant. Yeah. And I'd like to, as well, of course, echo what Anna said. And we're very thankful for badges for funding this project. But before we let me... Before we let you go, we kept you here a long time. There is one more thing I did want to talk to you about, and that is your second life. That sort of, I suppose, in many ways, quite connected to your first life as an academic. But that is that you also write novels, as well yeah. as um, your academic research. And this is something we talked about in a in, in a previous episode with uh, Dr. Buffelli about the you know the the unique pressures and time pressures of of working as an academic. How do you find time as well? to write novels and is it something that was born out of already writing as part of your academic career or is this something you've always had sort of a separate interest in writing fiction and how do you find that balance of being able to both you know work as uh you know your, your role at Cardiff your role as um president of badges and also write um full-length novels 
Sure. Um, I think I've had a dream of writing novels going right back to, I think probably around about the time I was a PhD student. And I think I'd started jotting down ideas. I think I'd even started write, trying to write a book at one point, but it didn't go anywhere and stuff. Um, I never really gave it any further thought. And then after I got the job at Cardiff, and I think it was probably early 2000s, around about that time, I went to a talk, um, which was mostly for PhD students, but unknown to most academics. A lot of the workshops which are put on for PhD students, academics are often allowed to go to as well. And there was a particular talk being given by Maurizio Ascari, talking about various things to do with literature and novels. And I can't remember exactly what the title of the talk was off the top of my head, but uh, it caught my attention for some reason. And I went along to this talk and there were two things that I got out of it, which have been really influential to my life. And I really can't think, thank um, Professor Ascari enough for this. One was the significant role that novels can play in helping us understand society. And as much as I'm not a linguist, I'd also say I'm not really a literature person, or at least I wasn't. I've got into literature more as I got older, um, but I'd never really appreciated that role that novels can play in terms of getting us to stop and think about issues. But the other thing that the workshop flagged up is just the importance of getting your fingers working and writing. And um, it was suggested that on days when you're trying to do writing for your academic work, do a bit of free writing first. And by extension, you could add all this free writing together over the course of a period of time, and you might have a whole book there. And I kind of thought, yeah, why not? I kind of like this idea. Um, and of course, then the next thing to be doing is, well, what am I going to write about? That bit was the easy one. I spend so much time traveling on Shinkansen. I just thought I must be able to write a book about a Shinkansen. And it kind of went from there. And so the first book, which is called Hijacking Japan, is set around the hijacking of a Shinkansen, but actually the hijacking only takes up 50% of the book. It's actually part of a much bigger story, which I'm not going to tell you about. Mm -hmm. um, but I, being an academic, I also set myself challenges for it. So, I mean, when I started working on this book, it was when the TV series 24, starring Kiefer Sutherland, was popular. And I loved that real-time element because one of my big bugbears about watching most movies and dramas is when people are rushing around and they suddenly manage to get from one side of London to the other side of London in seemingly in five minutes. And you're thinking, that'll take at least an hour. <laughs> How does this work? I mean, other than seemingly not having enough toilet breaks, 24 always seemed very realistic in terms of the way time progressed. And so I wanted to set myself the challenge of, could I write a real-time novel? And that's what that first book became. So I worked on the basis that on average, we can talk at around about 170 words per minute. So each chapter, and it could become very regulated by time because of course Shinkansen is very punctual. Each chapter was worked on the basis that if the chapter is one minute long, it's 170 words. If it's 10 minutes long, it's 1,700 words. This actually ended up and meant that in the end, the book ended up at around about 150,000 words. So it's a lot longer <laughs> than my academic books and a lot longer than most novels, which tend to be around about 80 to 90,000 words. So people get their money's worth for their 99p or whatever it sells out these days. 
So that was the first book. And in terms of writing that one, I used to do about an hour or so, quite often on a Tuesday night when I had to take my kids to swimming classes. Because, I mean, I would try to remember to look up from time to time. In fact, my daughter in particular used to glare at me as she was turning and wanted to do a new length. And I wasn't watching or whatever. But um, other than possibly golf, swimming is up there as one of the most boring sports to watch. I mean, it's... It's just nothing going on. It's just people going backwards and forwards. Sorry to anybody who's into swimming or golf. So it, it was now where I could be doing something else. Um, and so it became much more that than actually how it had started most meant to have been sort of at the start of the day, get your fingers working. I then had, I'm not sure if it was writer's block or I just didn't really know what to do next with the story. I knew I wanted it to be more than just a hijacking. People don't really want to re read about trains and hijackings and stuff like that. It's, it's a limited storyline to some degree, you'd think, with that. So I think I was getting blocked on, I knew it was getting near the end of what became effectively part one of the book, but I hadn't quite figured out what part two were going to be. And so it kind of paused during the latter half of part one. And then one summer we were on holiday uh, in the Netherlands and I, there was no TV or anything particularly at the place we were staying. And I just thought, I'm going to sit down and write this. And I started spending about two, three hours a day in the evening working on it. And ever, I, my mum bought a computer when we were when I was very young, uh, one of these sort of Amstrad machines and everything. And because of that, I learned to type very quickly. Um, I mean, when I was director of the College Japanese Study Centre, I had a secretary. Um, I think was even the term used when I first got there. Never used her for writing letters because I could type just as quickly as she could. There was just no point. So, in two or three hours of writing on a holiday, that was equivalent to getting. I think sometimes 4,000 words done a day, something like that. Not necessarily high quality stuff, but just getting it down. And I always try to aim for word limit first and then tidy up quality later on. And so it all just started coming together. And then I knew what the second part was going to be. Um, and by this stage, I'd also tied up one idea. Originally, I was going to write it under a pseudonym because um, I wanted to actually keep it separate from my academic life. And then two things happened. One was, I had the thought, what if I get this published and in the very unlikely event, one of my students comes across it, reads it, if they were to come up to me and say, although it says this name on it, is it actually you writing under a pseudonym? Would there be any point in denying it? Would I be able to deny it? And I thought, probably not. The other thing was, in on those moments where you go in sort of dream world, and I was sort of thinking, just imagine it gets published and gets turned into a movie. Would I want to see a pseudonym up on the screen or would I like to see my real name? I want to see the real thing. So I thought at that point, stuff it. It's, I'm going to use my real name. And that actually allowed me to write much more easily because rather than trying to hide bits of my identity, I could put much more of my experiences into it. And the, the best example from the first book is that um, it ends up talking about the jail crash, which was never going to be in there. And I mean, I started writing this book before I even started doing the research on the jail crash. But in the end, it, it became a great way to tie the things together. So getting to part of your question is that in the end, it allows me to deal with some of my research in a way I can't do in academic writing. It gives me a lot of freedom. These days, I write very differently. So I've written two subsequent novels, and I do tend to spend... 15 to 30 minutes a day writing but the speed that I write that means anything up to 500 words a day 
and I'll leave you to do the maths on this, but if you're talking about a book being 95,000 words long, that's finishing a book in around about nine months, roughly, if you just work only on weekdays at that average. Um, the slowest bit is then going back through editing and, and so on. Whereas my first book, Hijacking Japan, took, I think, 11 years for me to, to do. The next two both took about 10 months, I think it was. Um, I've got two more lined up, but I'm actually working on another project, a non Another non it's a non-fiction book, but it's not one of my main academic books either. So I'm, I'm using that in my time, which I would normally use for, for fiction writing, as it were. So I'll be working on my, third, uh, my fourth novel um, probably later this year, maybe the start of next year. Um, although I'm jotting down ideas, I, I know what's happening with a lot of it. Um, but in reality, it's just about realizing how to use time. I mean, I tend to do it over a lunch break, sometimes in the morning, sometimes at the end of the day. I do it during the working hours in terms of sort of that nine to five thing, but we, we get an hour's break during the day. Everybody talks about you have an hour for lunch, you don't. Our contracts, at least at uh, my university, is that you get an hour during the day, which is to take account of all your breaks, whether you go for a tea break, going to the toilet, lunch, whatever it may be. I tend to have a very quick lunch, quite often a working lunch, so I reckon I'm owed half an hour whenever I want to take it to do this other writing, which actually helps promote my academic work a lot of people who've read the novels then go on to read my other books as well. So, and it's a form of impact as well, I guess, at some degree. But I like doing it. It gives me a bit more freedom to talk about certain aspects of Japan I can't do in the academic writing. It presents different challenges. I, as, I mean, the first one had the challenge of the word count, but each of my books, I've, I always give myself particular challenges and things to do. Um, so that's what sort of motivates me to do it. Um, and as I said, I mean, it's like what the advice I say to PhD students, if you're ever getting stuck with writing, just think about how much writing you actually do. Um, one thing I always say to my PhD students and even undergraduate students, if they're doing a dissertation or something, if you think you're getting stuck and not writing something down, send an email to a friend who's working on the same sort of topic and just have a bit of a discussion by email or do it by WhatsApp if you want. Email's a lot easier. But once you've done that discussion, then copy and paste those words into your Word document and you'll be shocked how much you wrote. I mean, if people went and did a word count on how many write words they write in, in emails over a typical 24 hours, <laughs> they would be astounded. You copy and paste that into a thesis and you've written a thesis in like a month. And I'm probably not kidding or exaggerating on those numbers. Uh, and so it, it's taking that principle across. So, and here I'm just spending 500 words each day and it just adds up and adds up and, and so on. Um, but I always keep it under control. It is not what I get paid to do. So I don't ever allow it to get to a stage where I spend a whole day working on it, unless it's during the holidays or the weekend or something like that. But uh, it gives me an extra sort of hobby, as it were. But no movies just yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was coming in and asked for the, the rights to make the movies, but you know, <laughs> I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be retiring on it anytime soon. I mean, there's some ways, I mean, I, mean, I, I know quite a few authors and they're very envious of me because they say, look, you can, you're just writing for fun. You, you do the fun bit. You get to do the writing. You can do your own PR work and publishing and all the rest of it as you like. You don't even have to worry about publishing it if you didn't want to. You do what you want with it. It's not your income. It's not your bread and butter. Um, many authors hate the pressure they're under. So although part of me dreams of like, yeah, it'd be nice to be a novelist. I think the pressure of having to publish and write it would actually take away some of the joy of writing it and could actually restrict 
some of the storylines and, and so on. So at the moment I'm enjoying the freedom, but um, there is an internal self-censorship. I mean, hijacking Japan, I pretty much wrote whatever I wanted, but I've been a little bit more circumspect with some of the others because I kind of thought, actually, there's maybe certain things that I don't want my students to be reading and thinking about and discussing and so on. So I, I've sort of, uh, there are less uh, adult-related bits, let's say, <laughs> than the first one. And even that one was toned down. I had three versions of hijacking Japan, and one version of hijacking Japan will never see the light of day. Only <laughs> X-rated. I mean, um, it's, it's definitely something that a lot of people have been to to writing workshops, and it's always something that um, you're being advised that in, in order to bring um, to, to further develop your academic writing, um, writing something um, that has nothing to do with your. Uh, academic work will improve it necessarily but it's it, it's very inspirational to see that people are actually taking that uh, advice and then making yeah not and even just a writing exercise yeah. but a whole books out of it is, is really yeah. um yeah and there i mean and it's now developed so that um i now also have a, a blog site as well um and it's the same sort of principle that um just getting yourself out there um and I mean, I do a blog post almost every weekday at the moment on different themes. And I sometimes think I'm going to run out of things to write about, but actually I don't. I've, I've got a running list of ideas that I jot down. And sometimes people email in and sort of, or send me an email or a tweet or whatever and say, have you thought about doing something on this? And I sort of add that to the list. And most of them are fairly short. Sometimes it's helped promoting my research, sometimes it's for my novels, sometimes it's just discussing Japan. I do quite a few book reviews just of novels I've read, I put up there. Um, and I would really recommend it to people to try doing it, even if you don't publish it, even if you just go through the process of writing it and you can post it, but only for private viewing, the rest of the world can't see it. Um, I did a post recently where it was only through, although I, spoken on the topic many many times it was actually only as I wrote it all down and thought about it I thought actually I'm not quite right I need to tweak my thinking on this um, it's a really valuable process and um, again quite often what I do is that um, with some of my writing um, such as for the non-fiction book which I'm writing as well at the moment I'll write a blog post and I will copy and paste that text into my entry for my the book that day so it's actually killing two birds with one stone so that's another way where you, you can keep things moving along um always be looking compromise is one of my fortune cookies the other one is copy and pasting is your friend <laughs> i think it also highlights that like the what used to be a very static um one-way system of how to do acad academia has changed over the time so much and you kind of is, is showcasing what different type of people are involved in academia as well and that kind of like diversity is so nice to especially with the internet these days to yeah. actually see that and showcase that is, is I think a, and I think it's also an evolution of how we've had to work during COVID as well um, yeah because I've always thought for research you need big blocks of time and I mean, when I had been finishing off some of my books, I used to get up at like four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I always thought I was a night person. That's how I did my PhD. I discovered I'm actually better as a morning person, getting up and getting stuff out of the way because at that time of the day, I haven't yet looked at my emails. 
I don't feel guilty about not looking at my emails because people shouldn't be doing emails at four o'clock in the morning. The kids aren't up, wife's not up. I can have three hours of my own time listening to music. I can't work in quiet. I need music. Listening to music and writing an article, book, whatever it may be. But during COVID, I've realized actually sometimes it doesn't work like that. You can't get that same level of concentration. And I think from doing blogs and working on novels, I've realized even with research, you can actually achieve a lot just by half an hour here, an hour there. There are still times where I think you need big blocks of time. But actually, particularly when it comes to the writing, I've realized it's actually just as good to just, I mean, I, I has, have it as a read recurring task on Outlook to, to work on an article or whatever it is. And just every day I just tick it off. Yes, I did half an hour miss it today or an, or an hour. And sometimes it would be rubbish. Sometimes there'll be words that will be useful, but just that repetition I think is very useful. And I think um, it works for me, not gonna work for everybody. I mean, a lot of this I think is about people have to learn who they are and also remember they change over time as I realized that uh, I'm a morning person, not a night person. Um, but I think for those of us going back to an earlier conversation about the challenges of family and friends and all the rest of it, it is challenging trying to fit everything in, but actually, some of these things can be done. Um, it's just a matter of trial and error and trying to work out whether it'll work for you and, and so on, and making adjustments. Well, normally at the end of one of these episodes, we'd, uh, we'd ask you to imagine you were back at your first day of your undergraduate studies and what sort of advice you would give your, your first year self or any generic uh, Japanese studies undergraduate. But I do feel like you've given us quite a lot of <laughs> good, good advice. Uh, my, right my, my guess is no one's going to still be listening by this stage they, they <laughs> on for so long they're not going to be listening to any final word bit of advice actually if i could give one bit of advice listen to your lecturers they actually know what they're talking about <laughs> this is one of the most shocking is one of the two most shocking things you discover in your life one your lecturers and teachers know what they're talking about and two your parents even know sometimes what they're talking about as well it's actually worth listening to advice they pass on and I think too many of us don't appreciate it until many, many years later. And I've actually had one or two students bless them over the years who've, I mean, I had one student who complained about some of the stuff I was teaching when they were in their final year, but then wrote to me about 10 years later and said, actually, thank you. You were right. We did need to know about these things. And that meant the world to me. We don't always get it right. We're still on a learning process ourselves, but uh, there are so many more things I wish I had taken on board from my lecturers as an undergraduate and also had the opportunity, taking the opportunity to ask them as well, because I appreciate now just the immense amount of knowledge they had. And they were just giving us the tip of the iceberg of that knowledge in classes. And I just really encourage all undergraduates just to engage with their lecturers as much as possible, ask them questions, take on board what they say, uh, and keep in mind that they want to learn from you as much as you should be wanting to learn from them. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, even though I'm not yet by far done with my studies, um, this is definitely something that I've been realizing over the past couple of months and years, um, how, how much I then go back to what I've done in my first semester or uh, in my second year. Um, and uh, yeah, most of the time, um, it, these are the things that really you stick to them and uh, kind of develop your own style around it as well as a teacher later on so yeah. absolutely yeah yeah I would certainly say that pretty much every major decision I've made so far in my academic journey can probably be traced back to a 
a conversation or a good bit of advice from a particular lecturer or um, supervisor so far. So I can definitely uh, agree with those sentiments. We do also get it wrong as well, though, don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, it's your own life. Um, but it goes back to the compromise. There's almost certainly always never a complete right and wrong way of doing things, right and wrong path, right and wrong answer. You just got to be prepared compromise, hope there's a bit of luck, try things out. But lecturers are much, most lecturers, I think, are much more open to chatting and giving advice and helping and so on than I think a lot of students appreciate. And I think sometimes they see lecturers a little bit too much in awe or don't want to disturb us naturally. In the end, we tend to get disturbed with very trivial things where we'd much rather have a student come in and say, can I sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and talk about a particular topic? I think a lot of us would welcome that in reality. Well, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for thank you sparing your time to. Well, thank you, thank you both. It's been a, a wonderful time. It feels uh, feels these sort of podcasts are always a bit strange. It feels very uh, narcissistic at one level and sort of picking myself up and everything. But I, I really hope that people, if they listen to this, get something out of it. I can't imagine they will, but I hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure they will. Uh, it's it's been great to hear about your your career, uh, your journey so far, and and your various projects. Um, are there any other upcoming projects that you want to take a moment to, to tell, tell the audience about before we let you go? Well, so, I mean, a couple of things, uh, just, just so people know what I'm working on. I mean, as I said, I, I will have uh, at least two more novels coming up in the, the coming year or two. So keep an eye out for those. I'm also um, recently signed a contract to do the second edition of Japan, the basics book. Um, so if you're not familiar with that book, it's very much sort of meant to be sort of, the first steps of how to study Japan and, and so on. Um, so actually, I'm, I'm inviting people to contact me with any things which they would particularly like me to include within the book, including if you've got a really good paper you think I should be referring to. I'm happy to listen to suggestions on that. Um, and then other than that, um, instead of working on a novel at the moment, my, my other project is I'm actually writing a book related to the 1980s group Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, who are my favourite musical group and so on um, but it still I've actually still managed to tie that into Japan because Japan was one of the few countries they toured to and so as an academic side of things I'm actually interested in how do Japanese fans because I think very naturally many of us look at Japanese music there's an interest in Japanese music and so on but I don't think so many people stop to look at Japanese fans love of western music and actually most western music is not as popular in Japan as is sometimes portrayed. I mean, other than sort of Madonna, Michael Jackson, a few exceptions, the, the market is almost completely domestic. 85%, um, 90% of sales in Japan are of Japanese artists. So I'm interested in how Japanese fans get to find out and follow Western groups. And then why is it for Western groups, they go to the length are doing Japanese versions of the CDs, records, and so on, given they're doing it for such a tiny market. And of course, these things then become on to become collector's items and so on. So that's the other thing that's keeping me um, going at the moment, another project I'm working on. And uh, as I say, that's getting in the way of novel number three, or sorry, novel number four, number three in the Iwakura series. So I don't want to spend too long on it, but it is quite fun to be able to uh, spend half an hour each day just uh, basically talking and writing about your favorite pop group. That sounds very interesting. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on those. And I'm an avid uh, music fan myself. A lot of uh, record collecting trips in, in Shimokita's other when I was in Tokyo. So 
um, sounds really cool. Thank you. Excellent. I certainly implore everyone to go and check out your works and um, we'll include a link as well to your, your website in the show description because I know you keep all the important information about your academic work, your Everything's work, up there. Everything on, yeah. on your website, your blog. So uh, we'll include that and people can go check that out. Lovely, uh, thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you again for reminding me. Thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.